Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 269, Scorn and Ill Will. Irritatingly, it is time to turn the clock back from where we got to with Thomas Cranmer, which is spookily exactly what Mary tried to do in her first parliament. How's about that for a link, ladies and gentlemen? Mary may have arrived with gentle words but once Parliament met on the 5th of October 1553, it was pretty clear what her objective was. Not that many were fooled by the pretense at toleration, but there is this sort of really weird period until the end of that first Parliament in 1553, where Protestants were standing on the letter of the still-existing Edwardian reformed law, while all around them Catholics were with some relief, firing up the old mass again, digging up the candlesticks and where they'd hidden them, restoring the worn and much-loved symbols of their devotions to pride of place, in those places where they'd managed to preserve them. There is trouble and moderate mayhem from both sides during yet another fractious period, but I'll give you just one example of the sort of things that go on from, by the way, Peter Marshall's excellent book on the English Reformation, Heretics and Believers. I recommend it unto you, in thy mercy. At Poole in Dorset, the priest was a chap called Thomas Hancock. Thomas Hancock appears to have been a Protestant-minded sort of bloke. Thomas Hancock was a man after my own heart, in the sense that he was very compliant. A man after my own heart, because after all, if it wasn't for us compliant folk doing what we're told, what fun would there be for all you rebels out there to question and challenge the existing order? There'd be no existing order to challenge. So, although he clearly did not wish to do so, and wanted to keep on with his reformed religion thing, he stood up in church and did what he had been told to do, and he read out the Queen's proclamation to his parishioners. This is the one where she said that she aimed not to compel 
or constrain other men's consciences. Now, obviously, you can emphasize different parts of this statement. If you're a Protestant, you could say, look, there we go, no change coming up. The law is what we use, the good old honest-to-goodness no-poo book of common prayer. Job done, hurrah. Or you might say, hey, look, how fab is that? We can do whatever we like. Bring out le fromage de la belle France. Get that mass we always loved back in here. Oh, let's get rid of that whitewash. It's so boring in here now. Well, Thomas Hancock went for route A and he casually explained to his parishioners that it meant merely that they should let her alone with her religion, i.e. Mary would be doing her thing, everyone else would follow the existing reformed law, which was, after all, the law. This is a rather sweetly optimistic idea. We'll all be Protestants, the Queen will be Catholic. The Catholic-minded folk in the church looked at each other. All of them said, I don't think so, and declared UDI. Excuse me, they said, pushing past Hancock as they set up their altar again, as it once had been. And, oh, by the way, meet the new priest, introducing Thomas, ex-priest, to a French Catholic priest they'd brought over to say Mass for them. Now, Hancock probably shed a bitter tear at this, but the Protestants in the community were not prepared to take this kneeling down, and they just pulled that altar right back down again. So, one of the other parishioners says, Right, all out, brothers and sisters, round to my place, where they set up a rival church, essentially. Every so often, one of them would nip back for a service with Hancock, just to see if they could hear him say something actionable so that they'd get him banged up while Hancock's supporters threatened the Catholics with violence if they should dare to ring a bell to call the faithful to prayer. England was in schism with Rome. Mary had been in schism with her father and her brother. Parishioner was in schism with Parishioner. It tells us that the cause of Protestantism was well advanced in England. It tells us that a very large number wanted nothing to do with Protestantism in England. If only they could have had a referendum, they could have sorted it all out good and proper. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is me being modern, political and snarky. Keep calm and carry on. So, that's the backdrop to Mary's first Parliament. There's really little doubt what Mary wanted to do, which is just wipe out all the years since her father had started overdoing the source, humiliated her mother and worst of all, of course, threatened the immortal souls of her subjects in her view. As soon as she had come to the throne, Pope Julius III had appointed Reginald Poole as the papal legate, keen to get him over to England and start the good work of returning the English to the fold. I must admit, I've always seen the story of Mary very much from an English standpoint, which is not unreasonable. I am, after all, English. But it's also worth remembering just how significant this all is from a European and Catholic angle. Up to now, the history of the Reformation had been a seemingly never-ending series of defeats. Now, at last, a tide was turning. It was seen almost as a miracle. And Paul should have been a good and obvious choice. He had English noble blood, he was a brilliant man, and actually, he had some theological areas where he sailed remarkably close to the Lutheran wind, having championed, for example, the adoption of justification by faith alone to the Council of Trent. He'd come within one vote of being elected Pope himself. So, you know all those pub questions? That came very close to adding a second to you-know-who. Now, some of these trends would become flaws, but Paul was certainly engaged. 
and Paul was onto it like a rat up a drain, petitioning Mary immediately that the key thing was to end the schism with Rome and to return England to complete and unconditional obedience with Rome. Renard, of course, was also urging the Catholic case, though with more circumspection, actually, than Paul. But Mary had decided that the robe of the English Reformation must be unmade the way it had been made, through Parliament. She told Renard that her people should not be interfered with or constrained to follow any other course until the coming Parliament should decide by law. However, Paul was held back on the continent by the intervention of Charles V. The emperor wanted to reap the glory of all of this, so he wanted his son Philip's buttocks on the English throne first, so that he could claim some of the glory. Paul then was to take over a year to actually get onto English soil and start working. It's also very interesting that Mary should have chosen the parliamentary route. It feels right and natural, and even inevitable to us now, that Parliament should have been used to this. But the rather like Cromwell's use of Parliament to implement the Reformation originally, it really wasn't inevitable at all. And amongst all the talk of Reformations and beheadings and burnings and war and so on and so forth about the jolly old Tudors, the fundamental change in the role and influence of Parliament in the period is not to be forgotten. It's a big thing, pretty much whopper status. Henry had seen England as an empire, and he made sure that Cromwell put that in the axe. But Cromwell had then used Parliament to validate the changes rather than imperial proclamation, and in the end was Cromwell's view that won the day. And both of Henry's daughters would confirm that view, and there would then be no going back. Anyway, enough blather. Parliament was convened against the background of the Queen's mariage, and as we have heard, Parliament would try to have their say on said mariage, only to receive an emphatic royal burn in reply. The job of Parliament, then, was to unstitch the Edwardian Reformation from the garment of England and take Blighty back to practice at the end of days of Henry VIII. Notibene. Not all the way back yet, then. The schism and theological changes under Henry would need to stay in place until Cardinal Poole could arrive. In general, Parliament was perfectly prepared to do the monarch's bidding, and their own bidding in some cases, so the treason laws were taken back to the days of the 15th century. The Edwardian Acts of Uniformity were repealed. So, the clergy were no longer allowed to marry, and those married and refusing to separate must leave the priesthood. Their children were little bastards. The ban on images was lifted. Communion would once more be in one kind only. And the proudest moment for Mary must have been when the marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII was once more declared to be legitimate. That hideous nightmare which had dogged Mary's life was finally removed. Too late to remove all the pain, but still it was something at least for her mother's memory which must have felt good. However, things were not perfect. There was considerably more of a tussle in the House of Commons than Mary would have liked. There were five full days of debate, which is most unusual and suggests a lot of resistance. Although the vote at 270 to 80 was obviously a very comfortable margin, it really didn't work in the same way back then as it does now. Each of those 80 people were taking a very considerable personal risk. It was similar in the convocation of the church that always ran parallel to Parliament's. The Edwardian clergymen protested noisily, ineffectually, but they protested noisily. And then there were some acts 
that they decided just could not be brought forward because it was felt that the commons would just not wear them, principally obedience to Rome, but also the repeal of the Edwardian anti-heresy laws, that is, to reimpose the penalties introduced in De Heretico Comberendo that we heard about all that time ago at the start of the 15th century. You might think this resistance was a doughty defence of the new tradition of Protestantism, and there might well have been for some for whom this was true. But the main cause was much more likely to have been money. So, you know that nice green acreage brought for a very reasonable price during the reign of Henry VIII, which churns out rent every year, which means we can rebuild our house in stone? Well, the church wants it back, please. The motivation for this great sell-off of church lands had been both religious and mercenary, but one of its most significant impacts was to tie the nobility, gentry and yeomanry in particular into the Reformation. If the church wanted its lands back, it would have to deal with the thing people loved most in the world, their wallets. And so, the return to Rome had to be postponed just for the moment. There was one other plan which had to be postponed too, which was inspired by Stephen Gardiner. That was a bill to remove Princess Elizabeth from the succession. What seems reasonably clear is that Mary cordially detested her younger sister. Who knows why? The obvious answer is that her mother's hatred of Anne had moved smoothly through the generations to Mary, not helped by Mary's suspicions of Elizabeth's dodgy religious credentials. But it could, of course, be something to do with something as simple as the cut of Elizabeth's jib. The way a jib is cut can be a surprisingly important consideration. It could be that Mary just found it annoying how much younger Elizabeth was than her. For that also can be annoying, especially as you get older, I can tell you from personal experience, she might have had Elizabeth's sneaky and political approach to life as a frustrating thing to deal with. In a different person, maybe Mary would have recognised the similarity between their positions, that Elizabeth in many ways shared exactly the same terrors as she, Mary, had been through. But Mary had been forced to hold her defiance and resentment far too close for far too long for that to happen. At various times, Mary and Elizabeth managed to be more or less pleasant to each other, but I doubt that at any time the Venetian ambassador's observation in 1557 was any less true. Although it is dissembled, it cannot be denied that the Queen displays in many ways the scorn and ill-will she bears her. He's talking about Elizabeth, of course. While Mary detested Elizabeth from the start, it's not clear whether Elizabeth returned the sentiment, though it's absolutely crystal that every single spidey sense she had tingled like merry hell whenever Mary was around. But by the end of the reign, the Countess Ferrier remarked that Elizabeth was highly indignant about what has been done to her in the Queen's lifetime. Mary strongly suspected that Elizabeth was either an out-and-out -out heretic or was toying with the idea. And as far as Renard and the Empire was concerned, the situation was simple. Elizabeth was a dangerous heretic who, out of ambition or being persuaded thereunto, conceives some dangerous design and put it to execution by means which would be difficult to prevent, as she is clever and sly. Renard was not alone in this view of Elizabeth. Stephen Gardner was entirely of the same opinion, and together the two of them would try to persuade Mary to bring a bill to Parliament to bar Elizabeth from the succession. Spidey sense going bananas, Elizabeth 
begged for an interview with her big sister, falling on her knees and weeping that she knew the Queen was not well disposed towards her and she knew no cause other than religion. She claimed that it was just that she'd never been properly taught. She asked for books, for instruction, that a learned man might be sent to her to instruct her in the truth. With clever and sly, Renard had pretty much nailed it, I think. Elizabeth promised to attend Mass in the Chapel Royal, tried to avoid it at the last moment by complaining loudly of her stomachache, which sounds remarkably like a young David Crowther on a Sunday morning, actually, but Mary was implacable. Now, if there was any chance that Mary was fooled by Elizabeth's shenanigans, which I seriously doubt, then the Imperial Ambassadors made absolutely sure. The Imperial Ambassadors were like those irritating goody-two-shoes at school who tell tales to teach her. Last Sunday, the Lady Elizabeth did not go to Mass. She's half turned already from the good road upon which she has begun to travel. All you need is the hand eagerly stretched in the air to attract Mrs. Attention, and you could be back at school. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And so, Mary consulted with her counsellors and the imperial ambassador. Mary told Renard that it would burden her conscience too heavily to allow a bastard to succeed. It could be that Mary even toyed with the idea of actively promoting a rival over Elizabeth's claims. So, the Lady Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, was the daughter of Henry's elder sister. Does that make any sense? Was the daughter of Henry's elder sister, Margaret Tudor. The Margaret Tudor, who had married James IV of Scotland. Margaret Douglas. Now, you all know very well that precedence at a Tudor court was a matter of honour, life and death. So when Elizabeth was made to give way and take a lower precedence to Margaret, she was hopping mad. But she was also deeply conscious of the message that she was being given thereby. Now, Elizabeth had her friends at court too, notably the influential William Paget, and he voiced concerns that at a time when the commons were proving rather difficult about religious change, it might be wrong to antagonise them by attacking Elizabeth at the same time. Reluctantly, Mary agreed with him. And when in December Elizabeth asked to leave court, it was probably a relief to everyone. Mary agreed and loaded her with presents, while Elizabeth sent a letter from her journey to establish her good Catholic credentials by asking Mary for copes, casuals, chalices and other ornaments for my chapel. If there had been a golden Tudor award for insincerity, it is difficult to know who would have won the prize between the two of the Tudor sisters. So, time for a quick bit of summing up then. By the end of 1553, the way forward was clear. In religion... The truth was now pretty clear and while not everything was in place, the engine of change was moving forward. As part of this, Edwardian bishops like Hooper and Ridley had been deprived of their sees and good Catholic bishops appointed or reappointed in their places. The most active of them all, Edmund Bonner, the reinstated Bishop of London, 
would not wait for the arrival of Reginald Poole for any icing to be applied to the cake of revived English Catholicism. By the early days of 1554, he was looking for full obedience from his parishioners, or else. He summoned the church wardens of 30 London parishes, demanding why some of them have not the Mass and service in Latin. By the new year, 1554, the Mass was almost everywhere restored in London. It's worth noting that these new bishops, by the way, would prove to be very concentrated on establishing good practice in their diocese, a real break from the past of political administrative bishops, and a sign that the years ahead would be years of revitalised Catholic reformation rather than merely a re-establishment of the old ways. OK, so that's rumbling on over there. Then we have grumblings and worried sideways glances about all that lovely church land. We have suspicion and distrust not far behind, especially between Mary and Elizabeth. We have imperial influence at the very top of the country, with Renard offering and being asked for counsel by the Queen. So much so that Gardiner would demand that as part of the marriage settlement with Philip, it must be clear that no Spaniard would sit on the royal council. And then we have that Spanish marriage, decided upon by Mary, and fears running around of the forthcoming domination of England by a foreign power as a Spanish king occupied the English throne. So, essentially, double-double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Things are cooking. On the 17th of December, 1553, Renard wrote his report to the emperor. It is fair to say that Renard was concerned for the new queen of England. It appears that to be an ambassador you need to have sensitive and subtle ears, and it helps, like Elizabeth, to have been bitten by a radioactive spider and therefore be in possession of tingly senses. Renard had picked up some news, rumours and alarms. He suspected conspiracy, or at very least, resistance to the Spanish marriage. I hear every day that my Lord Thomas Grey and his brother Lord John, brothers of the Duke of Suffolk, the Earl of Worcester, my Lord Fertre, Somerset, the former admiral, a relative of Courtenay, the late Duke of Northumberland's son-in-law, and several others mentioned to me by Pelham, are conspiring to prevent his highness from landing. He was reasonably sanguine about Mary's safety, though, although he proposed the solution of surrounding herself with mm, three to four thousand soldiers that would have been unheard of in England and probably caused a rebellion in itself if it happened in peacetime. But Renard was also worried by the French, aren't we all, and what they might be up to. I am told that the French are fitting out 24 warships, four of which are already off the English coast, and spies say that the King of France means to strain every nerve to hold the Chanel against his highness. Others say he intends to use the ships to transport his troops to Scotland. Renard was a little off-beam in his identification of the leaders of the conspiracy, but as far as the existence or otherwise of said conspiracy is concerned, he was bang on the money. What he did not know was that near the end of November, a group of noblemen had met in secret at an inn in London, led by three men in particular. There was Thomas Wyatt, a soldier and nobleman of Kent, and the son of a poet, of course. There was also a very colourful character called Peter Carew. Peter Carew was a man of the southwest from a place called Mahoon's Ottery, who had spent much of his forty or so years abroad, doing a bit of good, solid and honest adventuring. He had established his credentials early. His family recognised that he was pert and forward. 
which I think probably has a different nuance back then. Basically, he was a bright lad and probably a bit full of himself. I say probably. Full of himself. So, he was sent to the grammar school at Exeter. At said grammar school, he was one of those boys from whom the compliant lot like me kept well clear and hoped to avoid notice from. No interest in learning anything, a boy who heard the cry of the wild and willingly and enthusiastically embraced it by regularly bunking off school and having a hoot in the highways of Exeter. Well, the low ways were probably more to his taste, to be honest. Finally, his local guardian spotted him in the town and a chase ensued all the way back to the school. And determined not to be taken home to face the terrible retribution of father and mother, he climbed up one of the turrets and threatened to jump. To which the reply, go on then, worked its perennial and immortal magic, and down he came the slow way. He was taken home on a dog's lead. On a dog's lead. Obviously, it's not so funny. Don't try this at home. When his folks were fully apprised of the situation, they kept him on the dog's lead, but attached the other end to a dog for a few days, which, you know, I could not possibly condone or endorse, but shows that the force of innovation was strong in this family. He then went to a school at St Paul's in Westminster, which had the advantage of being a long way away from his family. That went no better. So, at the age of 12, someone suggested a French nobleman friend of theirs, and off he was sent to join said French nobleman's household. Peter Grew's life followed a course pretty much set by the start, just like Aristotle told us, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the man and, oh, pass the bottle, would you? He didn't go down well with the French nobleman and was demoted to stable hand, but then hooked up with a relative called John Carew and off they went, ending up at the Italian Wars, still just a boy mind, entering the service of the mother of the Prince of Orange until finally returning to the court of Henry VIII by 1532. He's now managed to reach the hardened old age of 18. Henry, of course, thoroughly liked the cut of Carew's jib, and he was sent off on various courtly tasks, including greeting Anne of Cleves. In 1541, disguised as an alum merchant, he managed to sneak into the court of the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, a fascinating figure to Western Europeans, and then sneak back to Venice unharmed. Then he was in the Flanders Wars and the naval battle in 1544. Another little anecdote about that. So, there they all were on the ship, the Great Harry. Henry VIII, big, fat, piggy eyes. Admiral John de Lille, the future Duke of Northumberland. And all the council, discussing what to do about the French invasion fleet. They need to know whether the French fleet is in sight yet. Quick as a flash, Carew is shinnying up the mainmast. He bit his arm, he sucked the blood and cried, A sail, a sail! Well, he didn't do the ancient mariner bit, but he did announce the French fleet had arrived. I mean, there's a book to be written about this bloke, a flashman sort of thing. I had no intention of telling you any of this, but you know, when say you find something, it is tricky to resist. What you might take away from all of this is that Peter Carew was a man little given to the quiet life and much given to taking risks. You don't use the phrase calming influence with the lad. Which is actually quite different to one of the other co-conspirators, a man of the Welsh marches, Sir James Crofts. Like the other two, Thomas Wyatt and Peter Carew, he was a soldier and a Protestant. He'd served in Ireland in the early 1550s in an atmosphere of growing distrust there. The operative strategy you might or indeed more likely might not remember was surrender and regrant. Cromwell and Henry had decided that what was source for the Welsh goose was source for the Irish gander, of everyone in the island, Old English, New English or Gaelic, 
the chance to become part of the English state and subject to English law. The way this worked was for the Gaelic lords to surrender their lands to the king and be regranted the land back with an English title, a small English flag on a stick, a Chelsea bun and a free copy of the White Album as and when the Beatles were invented. But our things, honestly, had not been going that well. Actually, that's not necessarily the fault of surrender and regrant, actually, which wasn't going too badly. But the imposition of Edwardian Protestantism had not been going well and had stirred up a lot of resentment and difference. The debasement of the coinage had royally messed up trade, so the towns were full of fury, pain and resentment. The government in Dublin were nervous and heightened tension by planting garrisons of English troops at ports all over Ireland, and had been the first signs of plantation of English settlers with the seizure of lands from the O'Moores and the O'Connors. There was unrest in the north, as the Macdonalds in Scotland, suffering from the collapse of their power in the Western Isles, tried to expand by taking land off the O'Neills in Ulster. James Crofts in this situation comes across as a sadly rare example of moderation and understanding. He majored on the previous strategy of surrender and regrant rather than the newer strategy of colonisation. He set up a peace commission under the Earl of Desmond with the chiefs of Munster. He tried to minimise the impact on locals of the new garrisons. He worked with the O'Neills to resist the Macdonalds in the north. Don't get me wrong, James Croft is not a model for how history could have been different. He followed a much more aggressive colonist line as well, developing settlements around Newry and Lacal. But he would later be highly critical of the violence of Elizabeth's reign, pointing out that good government causeth good obedience, not contrarywise, which is a fair point. So look, this is a writing disaster. Sorry, so my mindless and unacceptable distractions mean we're heading for a cliff edge. In their London Inn, the conspirators discussed their grievances. They were all of them Protestants, and it has been said that their aim was to remove Mary because she was a Catholic, and certainly most of the gentry that would join their cause would indeed be Protestants. However, the truth is probably much more nuanced than that. Carew would later himself say, If the Queen would forbear this marriage with the Spaniard and use a moderation in matters of religion, I would die at her foot. Once again, because the Reformation was such a dramatic change in English life and had such a profound impact on her diplomatic situation and sense of herself, it's easy to overemphasize the importance of religion. The main thing that worried the conspirators was probably not religion, though they protected Protestants in their areas and they did not want to be coerced back to Catholicism, their real concern was the fear of foreign domination through the rule of a foreign prince. Nobody knew yet how the relationship between a male king consort and a female monarch would play out. If the rules of the great chain of being were played out, Philip of Spain would effectively be their king. And either way, there seemed a very real danger that England would be forced to fight as part of a Habsburg party against the French. Their objective now, though, given the Spanish marriage, was to dethrone Mary and put Elizabeth in her place. The conspirators then had a plan with a capital P. They would raise the standard of rebellion on the 18th of March 1554. Until that point, they would stir up trouble and discontent in their regions, Kent, the southwest, and Hereyfordshire, and prepare the way for a rising by gathering support, and they would look for other supporters at court. Thus decided, they twizzled their waxed mustachios, swirled their capes around their faces, and snuck ostentatiously from the inn. Next week, I'm afraid I have another week off. Yes, I know, sorry, but that's the way it is. 
But I will be back in two weeks' time on the 21st of April for the story of the attempt by Wyatt and his fellow conspirators to derail Mary's Spanish marriage. Will they manage it, gentle listeners? Will the plan work? Meanwhile, everyone, thanks very much indeed for listening. Thank you for your reviews and comments on the website, Facebook, so on, which is one of the very favourite things about doing the podcast. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.